Hi everyone, welcome to week 17 of Primary Healthcare Development's Pre-Reg Pharmacy Podcast. I am still Sana and this week we're kicking off the Nara Therapeutic Index Drugs series with two of my favourites, Warfarin and Digoxin. I'm going to start off by speaking about these drugs and then we'll go through the most important, the most testable aspects of them both. I'm super excited for this one because when I was a pre-reg pharmacist I was so worried about warfarin especially because I always thought it was really dangerous to work with because it was a high risk drug you know it's that stigma with the words high risk but I worked a lot on the elderly wards where every third patient was on warfarin and their INRs would wobble about more than a little bit so I had to build up a lot of confidence with it hopefully by the end of the episode you're going to feel a lot better about both warfarin and digoxin each drug has a minimum level required to have a therapeutic effect. This is called the lowest effective dose. The other end of this spectrum, you'll probably know already, the dose at which the side effects overpower therapeutic benefit is called the lowest toxic dose. Have a super quick Google for a graph showing you a dose effect curve. You've probably seen them before. The curve is usually S-shaped. The area between the lowest effective dose and the lowest toxic dose is called the therapeutic index. This is what we're interested in. For some drugs, this window is really small, so we need to monitor the, the effects very closely not just therapeutic effects but side effects too today it's all about warfarin and digoxin so warfarin do you know what it's used for and first of all this week you're not going to get away without understanding mechanisms of action so do you know how it works well it inhibits an enzyme called vitamin k epoxide reductase this means that the production of vitamin k is reduced What's vitamin K for? It's involved in blood clotting. So it makes sense if its production is inhibited, the blood cannot clot as effectively. Now this information will actually help you to remember the counseling points associated with warfarin and hopefully it will motivate you to learn mechanisms of more drugs. This task does sound like it's, it means that you've given yourself more to learn, but honestly it makes a difference and it makes everything easier to remember. It also brings a tangible visual application of drugs and that means it's got a place in the journey of the patient. It's not just a random fact that you're learning. And top tip, patients are notoriously bad followers of advice, as everyone is, if you don't tell them the whole story. In my experience, if you explain how the drug works, they're much more likely to take them as prescribed. I do have an example that's not related to warfarin, but just to put it into context... Once upon a time, on the ward, a patient was worried about taking paracetamol, codeine and ibuprofen on the same day, albeit at different times. She was certain that they must interact, so she was reluctant to take the ibuprofen. I explained how each one worked and told her that after a surgery, we usually give even more potent drugs like oxycodone or naproxen to patients. I then went through the mechanisms of action of each drug, showed her how they do not interact, and by the end, she was actually grateful for her prescribed medicines. That is the true power of counselling and she lived happily ever after. Now we know how it works, what do we use warfarin for? In practice it's usually initiated by a specialist cardiologist and it's indicated for the prophylaxis and the treatment of VTE and PE, that's venous thromboembolism and pulmonary embolisms respectively. It's also used to prevent clots after the insertion of prosthetic heart valves. Have a look at the treatment summary for vitamin K antagonists. You're going to see that depending on the aims of treatment, there's a different target INR for each indication. Now what's an INR here, you ask? It stands for International Normalised Ratio, which I personally think is very random. International Normalised Ratio. 
if you heard that and you were not like medical in any way, you would not link that to blood or clotting, would you? But anyway, that's what it's called. And what it does is it's a measure for how long it takes for the patient's blood to clot. The higher the iron are, the longer it takes the blood to clot. And the way I used to remember it, and to be honest, like I'm qualified three and a half years now and I still remember it like this. The way I remember it is to think of the R, R in INR as standing for runny. That means the, high, the higher the INR, the runnier the blood. And of course, that isn't the absolute truth, but it just made it easier for my nervous little brain. Now, most of the time, the patient's INR target will be between 2 and 3, which basically means as close to 2.5 as you can get. The only times your target INR will be 3.5 is when your patient has recurrent DVTs or when they have a PE whilst taking anticoagulation and maybe some exceptions with some specialists. Once upon a time, we had a patient on my ward who actually had five old blood clots in her life. Five. The pain, imagine. So yes, the target is a little bit higher for patients like that. The dose of warfarin is variable, and that's why if you see the monitoring information section in its monograph in the BNF, monitoring for warfarin is really frequent until the INR remains stable and on target for a length of time. Now, why am I telling you this? How is it relatable to your practice? Well, each patient who takes warfarin has a record book, and if you ask them for their yellow book, they'll almost always have it. If you're in community and you receive a prescription for warfarin, my advice is to carry out a little cross-reference when it comes to confirming the dose. Ask the patient what dose of warfarin they're taking, and then ask for the yellow book and compare the two numbers. That way you can be sure that you've done everything in your power to get the patient the intended dose. And why is this important, I hear you ask? We've all got prescriptions with instructions on, on them, don't we, I hear you ask? No. Warfarin prescriptions are usually prescribed with as directed. That's because the doses can change so much in a short amount of time. And that's why it's so important to check with our patients that they know what they're taking and that the dose in the yellow book is clear for them. How do we counsel a patient starting warfarin? There are a couple of significant points, the first being the obvious increasing bleeding risk. So we have to remember to tell patients to watch out for any blood in their stool, urine, any spreading or unexpected bruising, or even if they taste blood. I think it's the stigma associated with blood that this can be really distressing for some patients. Understandably, so, Along with informing them of what they should watch out for, it's of the utmost importance to iterate that warfarin has been used for decades. And although bleed sounds really frightening, warfarin has an established antidote. And if they get to the right place in the right time, then they're going to be fine. And given what warfarin is actually indicated to prevent or treat, I always find it really useful making sure that the patient knows what a clot feels and look like, looks like. Remember, you've given someone warfarin, but it doesn't mean they're going to take it correctly. So pause for a moment. See if you can name three hallmarks of a DVT. Pause right now. Did you get them? The first and most alarming is pain, which is throbbing or cramping. It's usually present in the calf. That's number two. It's also important to warn patients that although clots are usually seen in the calf, they can actually happen in other areas of the body. I diagnosed a blood clot in someone's foot when I was a pre-reg. Number three. The affected leg is usually swollen. Number four, it's usually hot to touch. Number five, it can change colour. Anything from light red to the whole area literally looking like a big, dark, angry bruise. And well done if you got three of them. If it's the PE, however, it is a bit different and it manifests in difficulty breathing, painful breathing, and your patient struggles to breathe in deeply. What else should we counsel on? 
diet. Why? Well, do you remember how warfarin works? It's a vitamin K antagonist. Vitamin K is found in green leafy vegetables. So when patients learn this, they get quite worried about their diets and they start committing to like really awkward, hard, difficult to maintain changes. That's why it's really important to communicate with them that they can resume their eating habits as they are, but they must just contact a pharmacist or their doctor before making any significant diet changes. So actually it's encouraged to stay as you are because obviously the warfarin is working with your body and your lifestyle as it is at that time. Each strength of warfarin is a different colour and these colours are consistent across brands. This is excellent for those who forget numbers because more often than not, you'll ask a patient how they take their warfarin and they say something like one white and one brown one instead of 1.5 milligrams. If you're in hospital, you'll probably notice that everyone prescribed warfarin for the first time gets a starter pack of one box of 0.5s, one box of one milligram and one box of three milligram tablets. This is because in the first few weeks when the dose is changing so drastically, it's so much easier for patients to just adjust with the tablets they've got rather than pay for a whole new batch every single time because have you seen a prescription charge? What happens when the INR is out of range or if the patient bleeds? Well, have a look at the related treatment summary, please. This is something to remember. This is the bit of the BNF that we cannot get clearer, so do your magic and get it imprinted into your brain because this is the part that is the T word testable. The GPHC love to give you a small story about a patient who had a target INR of 2.5, something happened, and then she had something that inter interacted with the warfarin, her INR rose to 6.8, she didn't bleed, but what do we do? Well, if we look at the treatment summary for vitamin K antagonists, cast our eyes over the bullet point titled INR 5 to 8, no bleeding, we will see that we would withhold one or two doses of warfarin and then reduce the subsequent maintenance dose. Easy peasy, right, right. Only if you know where to look. It's not always a resource pack question either, so don't sit back and chill if you know where the treatment summary is now. Actually learn it. Warfarin is like the older cousin of the new kids in town, the DOAGs. There are pros and cons of opting for warfarin over the newer ones. The most obvious pro is that INR actually means something with warfarin, whilst with like edoxaban, rivaroxaban, stuff like that, there's no value in monitoring it. This is a pro because you might have a patient at high risk of plotting or even high risk of bleeding, so you really want to keep an eye on the INR. However, this itself is, in the, is a bit of a faff and actually can be a trek for patients to visit, visit the warfarin clinic every few weeks. Speaking of, try and get to see a warfarin clinic in action. It will definitely be the best thing you ever do in your placement, no exaggeration, especially if it's pharmacist-led. I loved that day. The knowledge and authority those pharmacists and technicians have is inspiring. It's extremely motivating. It makes you feel like you can make a difference and you really, really can. Going back to the limitations of warfarin, the nature of a variable dose means that the patient can struggle with remembering the current dose, whereas with like rivaroxaban and pixaban, the dose stays relatively the same. Obviously with warfarin, if the dose is variable, if they take something that's a bit different, that the impact and the consequences can sometimes be disastrous. 
Also, warfarin actually manifests in a response in two to three days because its half-life is so long. This means that the changes in dose don't actually change the INR in the, until a couple of days later. This can mean longer hospital stays and something called bridging. Bridging usually happens before and after surgery where the warfarin is stopped five days prior to the procedure, but in the time they aren't taking it, they bridge. That means they maintain anticoagulation with a low molecular weight heparin. That's stuff like... Um, Tinsaparin, enoxaparin, daltaparin. Apixaban and friends do not need this, which is a bit more appealing for a needle phobic patient. Finally, the antidote is called phytomenadione, or as you might know it more generally, vitamin K. See what I mean about how useful it is to understand the mechanisms of actions of drugs. By learning them, for warfarin, we got some counselling points out of it, the antidote, and a way to get the patient to better understand the treatment. This leads on nicely to a final positive about warfarin. It actually has an established and licensed reversal agent, whilst most of the dogs don't, and the antidotes that do exist, like Praxbine for dibigotran, are so expensive. So that was warfarin. Now it's time for the cardiac lacoside digoxin. It works by increasing the force of myocardial contraction. That means it's positively inotropic and it reduces the conductivity within the AV node in the heart. It's used for atrial fibrillation, that's AF, and heart failure, and it's a quirky little drug. A side note that you can go on the chase with and win £60,000. Do you know that digoxin is still extracted from the foxglove plant digitalis lanata? It can actually be created like synthetically, but it's cheaper and more efficient to use the flower. So how cool is that? You're welcome. It, I think it's my favourite fact in pharmacy. Sorry. And that's where the name Digoxin Digitalis comes from. So next time you see it, next time you dispense it, revel in that fact. Revel in it. Digoxin is a bit special in that it has some significant interactions. The one I will never forget is the risk of AV block when it's given with beta blockers like bisoprolol. It's usually crossed off on drug charts when they're prescribed concomitantly. Digoxin is a bit special in that it has some significant interactions and the one that I will never forget and hopefully you don't either is the risk of AV block when it's given with beta blockers like uh, bisoprolol. It's usually crossed off on drug charts when they're prescribed concomitantly and remember everyone's favourite herbal tablets and John's wort. That can reduce the plasma concentration of digoxin so patients should be advised not to take St John's wort whilst on digoxin. That's why the drug history and being accurate and encompassing in it is so essential. Signs of toxicity are vital to understand for all high-risk drugs. Whilst with warfarin, it's quite obvious that bleeding is a toxicity, while with the rest, there are only a few, sometimes even just like one hallmark symptom. Symptoms of dejection toxicity include nausea, confusion, those two are quite common, but Dejoxin toxicity also manifests in anorexia and disturbance of colour vision. That's an important one. Target plasma concentration is usually 0.7 to 2 nanograms per milliliter and it should be measured six hours after a dose. We're very lucky in that the name of the antidote to digoxin is digoxin-specific antibody. 
a special thing about the jocks saying that's noteworthy because they love to slide it into an exam question is that there's significant difference in bioavailability between IV and oral digoxin. So have a look at the monograph for digoxin in the BNF. Under the indications and the dose, it tells you that when we switch from IV to oral digoxin, we have to increase the dose by about 20 to 33%. That's a fifth, a fifth to a third. This is because the bioavailability drops so much when you go from IV to oral. And this is the kind of thing that could fit into a calculation question too. So please get your head around it. And if you cannot, it's fine because there's time yet. Contact me or any of the primary healthcare development team. We are always here to help. For each highest drug, narrow through therapeutic index drug, you need to know a number of things. I don't want to do that now. For each high-risk neurotherapeutic index drug, you need to know a number of things. How they work, what they're used for, anything that sets them apart, counselling points, significant interactions, what toxicity looks like, and if there's an antidote. Get all these jotted down in our magic notebooks and we'll be fine. Join me next week when I discuss lithium and phenytoin. I do love this little series. Everything is so interesting and the stakes are so high. Remember, I've been qualified for three years, so I like the weird things, but when you're a pre-reg farms, it's absolutely normal to be a bit repelled by these sorts of drugs. Have a word with your tutors and the pharmacists around you. Ask how they manage the monitoring of these sort of things in patients. It gives you an insight into how the information and the guidance you read on paper translates to real life. I hope these interactions and observations, if you're lucky, will fill you with confidence. With practice, you're going to be able to perfect your counselling and your decision-making, and one day, who knows? The great Warfarin Clinic creator could be listening to this podcast right now. In the meantime, have you booked your place on the Primary Healthcare Development Masterclasses yet? There are some fantastic topics and reruns for you guys who missed the first ones. So follow the link in the description box so you can get revision packs and learn from experts in their own fields. Talk about the gastro system, cardiology, immunity and so much more. I'm doing the one on malignant disease. Also, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and do join our group on Telegram for exclusive case studies, polls, quizzes and easy access to the whole primary healthcare development team. Speak to you next week. I hope you enjoy your placements.